I'm Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. In 1959, we were the largest number of blacks ever admitted to Harvard. We entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as blacks and African Americans. Our guest is Terence McMullen. He is a professor of philosophy and honors at Eastern Washington University Department of Philosophy. He has written a book titled Habits of Whiteness, a Pragmatist Reconstruction. The book offers a revised and updated look at the concept of whiteness in the United States and offers a distinctive way to talk about race and racism by focusing on racial habits and how to change them. I'm joined by seven of my Harvard classmates. Ah, Bill Collins, Harvard 63, 20 years in the Navy, then worked in nuclear and hazardous waste management for a while, and as a result of that came to Aiken, South Carolina, where I now live, lived for about 30 years. My wife is here with me and my children are all elsewhere in the country doing various things. Okay, Peter. Let's avoid. Let's and, avoid. And I'm up here, and I'm an editor and writer, and I'm up in uh, the northern tip of New Hampshire. Like I was saying before, it, it's, it hasn't hit 90 up here, so it's been nice. I just was gonna mention to the professor after, after Harvard, I I worked with SNCC in, in Georgia for two and a half years, and did some time in jails in three Georgia counties. And uh, my experiences did not leave me overly optimistic about the hopes for, uh, uh, about the ways that, that whites in this country change and maybe even human nature in, in general. Don't mean it sounded pessimistic, but just to get that on the table. Okay. Richard. Hi, I'm a youngster in this group. I'm class of 66 at Harvard. Um, I spent a career creating history museums, a lot of them about African-American history and the history of slavery um, uh, in the Caribbean and in the United States. And um, at Harvard, I spent a year studying um, William James and John Dewey and Charles Sanders Peirce, so I'm eager to hear this. It's always been a kind of sort of grounding for me in the approach I've taken to pedagogy and to studying history, so I'm excited about this session. Thanks. Okay, Ezra. After 40 years at Yale, retired here, I'm still in New Haven, meditating, writing, and, and thinking about things like whiteness. Okay, all right. Peter Grilly. Um, yeah, I'm class of 63 originally at Harvard, although I graduated in 65. I took two years off to study at a Japanese university in Tokyo. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, my whole professional background has been in <coughs> U.S.-Japan relations, and we'll be talking more about that later. But I'm really looking forward to your talk today. Okay, Alden. Uh, Alden Briscoe, uh, grew up in New England, now live just south of San Francisco, and I'm doing some work on politics. Now I'm trying to repeal the uh, 
law of gravity. Uh, there are a bunch of woke left-wing Black Lives Matter folks want us to be solemn and grave all the time, and I don't think that's right. Okay. Right. Spencer. Hi, I'm Spencer. I'm a class of 61, and <laughs> I am, uh, spent uh, the last uh, 40 years, the first 30 years in uh, uh, Black economic development, and then the rest of the time in uh, sustainable development. Uh, I'm a writer, uh, written a lot on uh, the topics uh, that I think you've delved into uh, deeper than I have. So I'm going to look forward to to this uh, to this session. Thanks a lot for being here. Okay, Jerry. Morning. I'm in Pasadena, California. I'm an environmental lawyer. Spent some time in the Peace Corps, working after that for the federal government, state governments, private industry, etc. And I missed last week because, despite being double boosted, I got COVID. So. Oh. How do you Not feel now? Trip is all I can say, guys. <laughs> wow. Yeah. wow, Ken. Um, hi, uh, Ken Manister. Uh, I also class three. Uh, I grew outside of Chicago. Uh, I taught for uh, I don't know forty years, mental law at uh, Santa Clara University. I retired a, a few years. Oh, hi, John Woodford, 63 slash 64 from Benton Harbor, Michigan. I can only I've been the editor and writer. I've worked for black nationalist separatist organizations for Johnson Publishing Company, but also for New York Times, Chicago Sun-Times, but most of my time at the University of Michigan. And um, I would conclude that um, there are no essential qualities of whiteness or blackness that should be applied to any groups of people. And, it, and to think so, to me, is to follow a, a fetishistic uh, mentality. Okay, all right. Dave, David. Uh, good morning. Um, I'm in Concord, Mass, uh, but I'm a transplanted Hoosier farm boy. Uh, across a life of numerous adventures, most recently. Uh, I've been trying to rally some of my Harvard Business School colleagues to uh, do something about uh, threats to our democracy. Um, really looking forward to this discussion. Thanks. Okay, Jeff. Uh, hi, I'm Jeff Fox, another another fellow from the same class, and an, another, like almost everybody else, a writer. Uh, after having practiced sociology for as an academic for many years uh living in spain okay and welcome professor mcmullen thank you for joining us thank you so much for having me i'm uh, i'll say this over and over again i'm incredibly deeply honored to be here uh, i really am i'm very impressed and trying not to be bowled over uh um i'm terry mcmullen i'm class of 94 at hamilton college uh and then got my phd at the university of oregon I'm currently the chair of the Department of English and Philosophy at Eastern Washington University, which is a small teaching intensive state school in the eastern side of Washington State. Uh, I'm originally from Santurce, Puerto Rico, uh, but I've lived all over the country. I lived in uh, Rockville, Maryland, upstate mm -hmm. New York, obviously, Eugene, 
uh, and both my parents are from the Bronx. Um, so I'm really honored. Uh, Mr. Garrett, thank you again for having me. Um, this is, this is uh, y'all's bailiwick. Tell me, tell me how we'd like to proceed. You can just start cutting into me or, or, or asking me questions or how, how, how do we do things. Tell us about the book. Tell us, tell you about the book. Sure. Absolutely. So uh, the, the real short version of it is when I was at the University of Oregon. Um, first of all, I, you know, like like most most people trained in, in philosophy in the United States, I thought pragmatism was just this this terrible idea. And it was just making up truth and believing whatever you felt like believing. Um, and I took a seminar on uh, the philosophy of John Dewey and W.E.B. Du Bois. And I fought and I fought and I fought and it was uh, I was about 80% of the way through the class. Uh, and I had a true Paul on the road to Damascus moment where after resisting as hard as I could, I said, oh my gosh, these guys might be onto something. Philosophy for it to matter actually has to be connected to how we live our lives. And um, and so I became a, a, a real follower of specifically John Dewey and W.E.B. Du Bois. It was as I was reading Du Bois um, and his early, very inviting works like Souls of Black Folk, and then most of his later works, I would say, are quite critical of the United States, especially uh, white folk in the United States. I started asking myself, what what is it like to examine race in a conscious way? in the way that he talks about his blackness. Um, and so I wrote uh, Habits of Whiteness as a way to approach the question of um, what many people have called our country's original sin, which is the sin of white supremacist racism. And so there's two sides to it. And my dad always used to say, if people on two sides of an issue are mad at you, you're either really, really wrong or you're onto something. Uh, so you can tell me which one it is. Uh, on the one hand, um, I say that um, we need to work through racism consciously rather than in a way that removes race entirely from our discourses for many reasons. One of them is that if the pragmatists are right about how we generally approach most things, we are creatures of habit. And habit isn't just uh, an unconscious, lazy, unreflective knee-jerk response. They have a, a full theory of habit where ideas get woven into our behavior and then they manifest in actions in ways that we're not always fully conscious of. The example that I give my students are is uh, somebody drops a 20 bill in, uh, in front of you on the path. Um, pretty much only a professional con artist will habitually step on that 20 bill, 20, $20 bill and wait for the person to walk away and pick it up. Most people will say, hey, you dropped something before they even notice what they did. They don't say, hmm, this is a moral decision I must make. What do I do about the $20 bill? Habits are the same way. And so this is why I think habit is an important way to approach race. In my experience, you ask white folk over and over and over again, are you racist? Do you have these invidious hierarchies in your heart, your mind consciously? Of course not. Of course not. Racism is horrible. I'm not racist. But then you look at how we behave and you look at how these things manifest in our actions. And I think that there are habits of whiteness that are woven into our behaviors that we won't get out unless we consciously recognize them and work through them. To use Dewey's language, reconstruct them. You don't just stop a bad habit. You find the root of it and you put something else in its place. Mm -hmm. 
So that's one, that's kind of the one big story that I tell. And, um, and I'm giving you all the good targets to, 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 to come at me from. These are all, all the weak points. These are, uh, philosophers usually argue in a way to try to defend themselves. I like to do the opposite. I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of laying my cards on the table. One of the biggest problems that we have to talk about in this country is this issue of pride. James Baldwin talks about the importance of having the proper kind of pride in your country, the proper kind of pride in yourself. Du Bois, his notion of race as a gift is um, when other earlier African-American theorists were trying to either move towards an accommodationist stance or an assimilationist stance. Um, he um, emphasized the importance of being proud of his race. Now, and I'd ask myself, what does that mean for white folk? Obviously, white pride is not what we're talking about. That's not, that's, that's not a good idea for lots of reasons. But we're in this situation, and, I ha and this, is, this is one of these moments where I know the bell rings clearly. When I talk to young folks, and we live in a culture where we duly and appropriately celebrate the cultures, the heritages of marginalized people, 12, 13-year-old white kids say, what am I proud of? What do I do? Now, I'm not saying this to feel bad for them. I'm not saying this for, oh, poor white folks. It's not that. You have to put something in its place. You have to, if you take something away, you have to put something in its place. We do not have a healthy, pluralistic, democratic, reasonable way for everyone to have a notion of them, of self, of connection, of history, that is prideful and makes room for other folks. So what happens when we don't have a way for white folks and everyone else to talk healthfully about pride, invidious, aggressive, racist white pride takes its place. And I see that here in Spokane, Washington. Um, you see this with these marches uh, that are happening more and more. They just had the, it was kind of like, you know, a silly Keystone Cops episode only because they stopped them so soon. Did you see the story about the, the 30 guys in a U-Haul in Coeur d'Alene um, that were going to try and break up a pride uh, um, uh, march? Yes, um, yeah. It would, I mean, it's, it's, it, it was played for laughs as it should be. They're, 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 they're idiots except if they had gotten out with their tear gas and their batons, um, then that could have been horrific. So those are all young men. And I think we fail to have a full understanding of what it is to work through our history of racism. And then how can we come out to the other side where we can all have a healthful notion of pride? So those are some of the problems that I'm working through in my book. Uh, Ezra. Well, Prof, I, I, I want to offer you uh, another way of, of my thinking about what you just said, and I'd love to hear your reaction. Yes, sir. Do, do I understand that you're saying whites don't have a good workable way of thinking about pride, a, a positive way of thinking about pride? Is that, is that right. am, I, am I understanding that right? That's right. That's right. All right. That's All right. right. So, then, so let me then move to my comment because I'm currently thinking about um, the concept of human dignity, which is a very important concept for us in psychiatry and medicine in general. And uh, they're acknowledged 
in thinking about it, and the philosophers have been participating in this also for a long time. So, you know, they're, 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 it's, there's, it's a core to the two essential groups about dignity, the inherent intrinsic dignity and, and the attributed dignity, which is what I want to talk about. The attributed dignity is, is the one that groups use to talk about themselves and others. And it's, it's fairly clear that attributed dignity, whites have spent an enormous amount of time and energy establishing dignity as a, a socializing way of thinking about the groups. So whites, whites in this country establish clubs and the clubs serve beautiful functions. They serve functions to make those inside the club think about themselves in exclusive positive, affirming ways. And of course, and of course, the other purpose of the club is to keep out those whom you consider inferior, or quite simply without getting into issues of superiority and inferiority, you just don't, you don't just don't want to hang out with them. So it's a way of, it's a way of distinguishing and, and individualizing uh, groups one from the other. So this this mechanism is a very powerful mechanism, for example, used in, in, in the world of uh, dominance and non-dominance. So the British taught us all about that in Barbados, where I grew up. Uh, you didn't get into certain clubs and so on and so forth. And you didn't, you didn't have attributes of a certain type of dignity. So, so, so my point to you is that uh, certainly the white Europeans, that includes the antecedents of Americans, were specialists in moving into new countries and thinking very seriously and confidently about how to separate groups and, and, uh, uh, and, and make certain groups be on the top and certain groups be on the bottom. And this is not just an economic concept, although economics contribute to it, cont contributes to it also. I mean, you can see it in the way you establish the church. I don't care which church you go to. Uh, everybody knows which church is the prestigious uh, church group. And even within the church, some sects rebelled so much against the distinguishing of bishops and deacons and so on within the church that they formed churches uh, where there was no leader, uh, where people just sit around and talk as moved by the Holy Spirit. So, so e even, in, even in religious groups, uh, they learned how to establish this method mechanism for distinguishing. So... Well, I'm gently, I'm gently because I'm not a philosopher, but I'm gently uh, and a bit provocatively saying, I disagree with your assertion and I'd love to hear you come back and teach me that I don't know anything at all about philosophy. <laughs> give, me, give me the last, could you put a finer point on the very last thing? What exactly, I, I actually uh, agree with what you're saying about human dignity and attributed human dignity. On what point exactly do you disagree with me, please, Ezra? Well, well, I, uh, that's why I tried to verify my first, my first sentence was to make sure I understood you correctly. Uh, and that's why I checked to, to, to figure out whether that's what you said, that whites don't have, uh, haven't found a way to, to talk about Got it. Um, Got it. White, whiteness this way, because I, I, th I think not only do they have a way of talking about it, but they've set up mechanisms and social structures where they are experts in doing it. Good. Yeah. The, uh, um, they, we don't know how to do it. And this is the key qualifier 
in a democratic, prideful, pluralist, uh, in a democratic and pluralistic way. You're absolutely right. Whiteness was built on an exclusionary notion of human dignity. You're absolutely right. Okay. That, that that's 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 actually the core of the notion of whiteness as as a conceptual framework. And let me, Ezra, if I may, one of the one of the key moments that I talk about in my book is one of these historical moments that gets glossed over real quick and has to do with Bacon's Rebellion um, in the 17th century in Virginia. Real quick, 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 quick version of this. Um, we have human beings, enslaved human beings brought from Africa. We have indentured servants who are spirited. There was the vagabondage laws. Being homeless in England was illegal. And the sentence for that crime was to be brought to Virginia against your will. This is an important point to remember. And so what happens, you have all these laborers from Africa, from Europe, being forced to work a drug crop that they don't want to work against their will. And lo and behold, they make common cause and they rebel. And they have no notion of black or white in their mind. Probably in the medieval sense they do. They can obviously recognize someone doesn't come from where I come from, but they don't have a scientific racial hierarchy in their mind. It's just different folks from different places and sure enough they rebel against the burgess and they have uh they almost they almost wrecked the whole thing that was making a lot of people a small number of people a lot of money what do they invent they invent whiteness in 1681 the first time the word white is used as a category and it's ezra it's exactly what you said it is its value is purely in one of exclusion this is this is the brilliant freaking evil card game they played they didn't give the European indentured servants anything they didn't have before. They okay. just took it from the enslaved people from Africa. And now all of a sudden, being white had an exclusionary value. And can you say who, how who, is, can you say who the antecedent of they is? Who is they? Sorry. Uh, white indentured laborers after 1681 did not gain any new rights with the codification of whiteness before that uh, they could all go into a pub uh they could all um you know they had certain rules about uh, how much food they could get this is really brutal uh they had limits on how much they could all be beaten they the european ones did not gain any new rights all that happened is they made life worse for the non European laborers. Ezra, I to, to cut to the chase, I agree with you. Whiteness as a legal category, as a conceptual category, was based on an invidious form of dreamed up exclusivity. Um, the law of hypo descent, the, the really horrific one drop law, was a conceptual representation representation of the fact that to be white, you had to be pure. You had to be not anything else. So that is actually, Ezra, you put your finger on, I think, what the core problem is. All these, now this is what the Du Bois talks about this. These um, white indentured servants, this is his phrase, were paid a social and psychological wage. They still had to get worked to death. They still were making money for somebody else. They still had very, very little freedom. But 
they weren't as bad off as one other group of people. So now all of a sudden it became bearable. And here's the worst thing. They became a free police force to patrol the lives and bodies of people who weren't them. Jump to the 20, 21st century. We have 400 years of people who look like me feeling like they are in a kind of a club, Ezra. Feeling like they are special. Uh, um, what's what are, what are the dog whistle terms? Real Americans. Um, what's what's the other one? What's God? Uh, uh, Tucker Carlson trotted out a really terrible one, but I think it was something like original Americans or something like that. Second, 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 was, gen, second. No, he, he's it was anyway, anyway. I can't think of the exact phrase, but the idea is that being white means that you're the you know uh, things should be special for me and then when you combine that with the fact that the middle class is basically going away that more and more folks of all racial backgrounds are being pushed into economically untenable situations what do i have left well i'm gonna angrily hold on to this exclusivity i'm gonna angrily and violently hold on to this misplaced pride in 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 skin color and who i am and you have, I think, the, the movement that we've been having for the last 10 years, where we have this resurgence of a very overt, angry claiming of exactly this sort of, of exclusivity. So Ezra, I would say we need to get to an inherent universal respect for human dignity, but we're not going to get there by not talking about race. That's mm -hmm. a, to, to cut to the chase. We have to work through the problem, not just stop talking about the problem. Mm -hmm. uh, Jerry. Yes, sir, I always have a little bit of a problem with what I will call blanket assumptions. Uh, indulge me for a moment. My mother, who's passed away, was black. She was the granddaughter of freed slaves. My father was white and Jewish. He never, ever felt that he was superior to any of his black colleagues. In fact, his best friends, I quote, best friends, but he lived in an all-black community. All of his friends were black. Uh, and many of his relatives, his white relatives, were very, very accepting. So this notion that in some way all whites were, had this innate feeling of being superior and therefore could look down upon other races, it was not universal as far as I was concerned. Now, their marriage was illegal uh, the entire time they were married. It wasn't until 1967 uh, that interracial marriages became legal, but he died in 1958. So, you know... As my wife would say, I'm I'm a bastard because it was never a legal marriage is what it amounted to. So, you know, I understand what you're saying. I'm just saying it's not universal by any stretch of the imagination. No, absolutely. Yeah, I, I'd be the first to agree. Um, I was raised, uh, you know, I'm the one uh, writing about how whiteness works. But where I was raised, I was... Uh, I had I had teachers who just referred to me as El Gringuito. Uh, I, I know what it is... Uh, um, yeah, yeah. Let me back up. Yeah, absolutely. This is this is talking about general patterns. I'm not saying all white people this or all black people that. I'm talking about these ideas and these cultural trends that we have, right? I think on the one hand you can say, of course, there's there's exclusions. Uh, every single person is unique. At the same time, Gerald, you, even you yourself said the marriage was illegal. Why was it illegal? Because they lived in a country that have a history of treating race in, in a certain way, right? So yeah, uh, I'm, I'm not saying I can look inside the heart of every single person and tell you how they think. That's not the, the statement. We live in a country where white supremacy was identified with citizenship. The first law of this country 
the first line of the first law said all white men residing in the states for one year, et cetera, et cetera, shall be citizen. And so whiteness is woven into the laws of this country, and we have to contend with it if we are ever going to get to the other side to a place where we can have a truly pluralistic, humane society that is relatively free of racism. Okay, Spencer. Okay, um, I'm really enjoying this, and you're right. I am learning a lot about it uh, from your from this conversation. I have uh, three words that I wrote down: anthropology, volume two, Bob Dylan, and psycho versus versus culture. Uh, anthropology, because I think what uh, you're uh, it is inherent in all human cultures to form uh, groups and they identify and they center around the acquisition of power to perpetuate their sexual you know, progeny. So, uh, and to give them the best thing. Okay, that, so that could go on for an hour. That just something for us to chew on later on. And then the second is volume two. I agree with you thoroughly. I, my volume two uh, is the South, 1865-1924. I spend two chapters on uh, talking about exactly uh, and agreeing with exactly uh, what you were saying, uh, uh, Terrence, uh, that uh, the white planters after the war, I talk about the reconstruction, was the reconstruction of that concept. And uh, and uh, rather than going to all of the, the research that went into that and how they did it, uh, and how they got the, low, the poor whites to go along with it uh, by giving them certain, you know, uh, kudos. So I, yeah. The last thing I, uh, I come to is Dylan, who if you uh, read his, uh, hear his poem, you know, you're better than them, he's born with high skin, he explains, and the Negroes claim you just claim for the politician's gain. As he rises to fame, the poor white remains on the caboose of the train, but it ain't him to blame, he's the pawn in the game. All right, and that's something to chew on. And the last thing is this, two words. The other dynamic and the addition to culture is psychology. Because human psychology exists within the brain by individual experiences, and it can transcend cultural conditioning. So that's why you can get people like Jerry was talking about with his uh, parents, a very admirable thing, uh, where... Uh, you, you see there the triumph of individual psychology. I rest. I, I don't want to continue talking. I just wanted to put those those thoughts that are out there. Thank, thank you very much, Mr. Jordan. Um, just a couple things to respond to. Um, when you're talking about psychology, this is why Du Bois says at the end of Dusk of Dawn, where he cites having worked with William James, where he says, and this is 56 that he's writing this, um, he says, we won't move past racism until white folk engage with their unrecognized habits of race. And that's him directly appealing to this idea that we can use psychology to be more than where we started for history to not become destiny. Um, I wrestle with the anthropology point where you said it is the case that humans tend to group it is the case that humans tend to try and you know we form fellow feelings and there's a big question of how elastic or plastic that 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 you know the term that the greeks would call philia that sense of we-ness that, that sense of us-ness 
um, I'm a big, you know, maybe I, this is where I'm, I'm a starry-eyed fool. Um, you know, let's see, let's push it. Let's see how big of a we we can, we can actually begin to feel. Um, Jane Addams uh, has a wonderful notion of concentric circles of compassion. You start taking care of the immediate we, the people you love, the people you see day to day, then go to your neighborhood, then go bigger, then go bigger. And that's why she, you know, went around the world talking about the need to end war, right? Um, because she's, she started to feel that fellow feeling that crossed military lines, right? Um, so I'm, you know, I, I'll say it's, you know, it's a bit of a naturalistic fallacy to say humans have always grouped, therefore we will always group. Who knows, maybe with psychology, maybe with science, this is one of the things that we can learn to overcome. But Spencer, uh, if I may, uh, Mr. Jordan, the Bob Dylan uh, uh, line, thank you so much for, for, for reminding me of that. That's, ex that's exactly, as a white person, I, I've learned, first of all, I you know get my own house in order. I talk to my family, I bother my own family, I bother my own friends about race and, and, and racism more than I do anybody else. I'm desperately worried about the poor white uh, on the back of the caboose who's a pawn. Um, add to the fact that we have a culture that fetishizes violence, fetishizes the use of guns to get what one needs, and fetishizes a sense of false aggrievement. And we have an absolutely terrifying possible future, right? Um, where they have a lot of, I would say, not all, uh, 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 Mr. Secundi, not all by any means, but I think, I hope you would agree with me that it is the case that many white folk are taught to look just like the Bob Dylan song. What do they say? Build the wall. It's them. They're the reason you're poor. They're the reason you're unhappy. It reminds me and of the South Pacific. Go ahead. You've got to be taught to hate and fear. It has to be drummed in your dear little ear. You have to be carefully taught to be afraid of people of a different shade. I could go yeah. on. Yes. Yeah. And and it's and when you read the when you read the story from 1681, when you read the story from Reconstruction, it's depressing how how easy it is to set up this this game. Um, and and so we're kind of having to work in two directions where white folks are having to come to terms with habits of whiteness that we don't want to acknowledge we have and at the same time actually talk about what it is that I should be prideful in a way, Ezra, that is not invidious, that is pluralistic, that um, one of my favorite philosophers, a philosopher by the name of Maria Lugones, says, when I say I love my family the most, that doesn't mean I don't love yours. It means that, in fact, I, I understand that you love yours the most, but we can have a very fierce love for those who are close to us without it becoming hate for those who aren't close to us. So to, to, to get back to this habit, this habit of, yeah. of white supremacy, uh, the thing that strikes me about it is that it's an extremely cheap habit. It's a, it requires no input, no energy. So it's one that's just given. And, and uh, that makes it very hard to do anything about because uh, it's, it, it, it's so easy. It doesn't, it doesn't require any effort on, it doesn't require the kind of positive input that yep. you were talking about. And sometimes I've thought that the only solution, well, two solutions, one is just attrition over a long period of time. 
Another is a kind of a universalistic or religious experience, like you were describing, of, of seeing outside the anthropological family. But in terms of U.S. history, it seems to me uh, there have been two moments that where the whole structure was challenged. And aside from millions of, of, of smaller uh, seismic events, but one was a civil war and reconstruction where the federal government for different reasons chose to, to uh, try to set up a different structure of things and, and it didn't last very long. And then the other instance of this was in the 60s when, when uh, our, to, to our immense surprise down south, uh, suddenly the civil rights law of 64 was passed and then the Voting Rights Act of, of 65. Now it seems to me we're in another situation of the same, we're in the same period, but we're in the same moment, inflection moment, they're like a couple of roads ahead of the society. And it strikes me that what is going to challenge the structure of habit that you're talking about? And in our country, in our multiracial country, with these terrible habits of thought, it seems to have been that the only possible uh, uh, challenger has been the federal government. And that's why well, I've always been a big fan of the federal government. And it seems to me that, again, uh, right now, what has to happen for, you know, it's well, however it goes, if it's going to go in a positive direction, it's because the, 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 the society is going to choose to make a top-down decision. And it's, the top-down decision has this immense power behind it. And it causes people to have to deal with it. And when you have to deal with something, then you examine yourself a little bit. But, but other than that, I'm not sure exactly what we get the thought process is going in a you know more hopeful way that that you're 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 describing as a wonderful positive development that I think we'd all agree is really the happiest and most necessary outcome for a multiracial, multicultural country like ours. Wow. Thank you. Thank you very much. I only see your first name, uh, uh Peter. Um yeah. first let me uh, let me just as an a priori say I'm uh deeply humbled and feel a little embarrassed speaking to you to all to be honest um i'm mindful i remember these these dates that you all said class of 63 i obviously wasn't alive then but i'm enough of a historian to know what y'all did and what it was like to be there so i'm speaking with please hear me when i say i'm speaking with total humility and i i don't know what the hell i'm talking about compared to any of y'all with that said um the actual habits uh, we have to reconstruct them. Um, I'll, I'll use, uh, you know, the first thing he said was, how do we do it? Because the habits are so easy, right? That's, that's a, so to move away from the topic of race and racism, that's one of these insights that James had, which is that we're critters who want to hit equilibrium and we want to move through life with minimal resistance. That's just what we do. That's why if I ask every one of you, where's your breakfast drink? in the cupboard y'all can probably all give me an answer right now and heaven help the person who moved it without telling you right um if my wife moved the coffee in the morning i i'd say i'd just lie down on the floor and die that's it right and it's because i have a habit of going to the cupboard grabbing and starting my day right 
race, navigating other human beings is really hard. And so we as human beings, this is, this is kind of like the anthropological point, we develop a shorthand. For the great majority of human history, it was myths, right? We have stories that we tell ourselves about. Why am I this way? Why are you that way? What do I do next, right? So the, the one answer, Peter, is what do we do about this? We have to put something in their place. So I talk about the book. I, this is not an exhaustive list, but I say white folks have generally learned certain habits. I call one habit of antipathy. This is a phrase from John Dewey, where we're taught to look at people that we don't read as being us in an antipathetic way. My, my gosh, how much do we see that with Build the Wall? How much do we see that with their coming for your jobs? That's the habit of antipathy to a T. Um, we also have habit of entitlement. This idea that um, why should I have to hit one to speak English when I'm calling? I'm in America. I decide how things should be. We should be speaking English implicitly because whiteness is normative, right? The One of the trickiest habits that I talk about is the habit of guilt, which is, tends to be one that we see on the left which is one that we still have to work through, which is this idea that there's nothing good about me, uh, there's nothing in my culture, and you know what? It can actually lead to something pretty scary. Let me borrow your culture, um, because I as white folk don't have one, which is its own kind of problematic issue. So specifically, I would say we have to work through those habits, and I kind of I go into that in some detail in the book, Peter. Let me, let me and then I'll, I'll say one more thing in hush. Peter, you talk about what are we gonna use other than the federal government? you again hit on the on the head one of the one of the main issues that i wrestle with all the time i'll put my cards on the table i'm a big believer in the federal government absolutely uh, uh, uh stop putting crap in the water uh oh and if people don't feel like doing it well we're gonna bloody well make you do it here's the problem with that and this is this is the harder lift peter for these things to have sustainability it has to actually be the other way around it has to start small and it has to start local and it has to start face-to-face. -face. John Dewey said that laws, constitutions, structures are only the physical manifestation, at best, the physical manifestation of a spirit of democratic life. And that the, the safeguard of all the things that we care about is not the existence of a law, it's our ability as neighbors to speak face-to-face -face, on street corners about the issues of the day freely and without fear of punishment. It's that last part, Peter, that I, uh, and again, like I said, I wasn't there, but I'm, I'm pretty sure y'all were better at this than my generation is, that y'all were better at talking to each other for, for good or for bad. And my generation has, in large part for technological reasons, and the pandemic <coughs> just made it much worse, we are severely balkanized. We are severely, severely broken apart. And, and my students are literally afraid of talking to each other face to face about the important issues of the day. So I think you're right. I think the federal government reconstruction tried it, but how long did that last? It, it, wasn't, it wasn't something that emerged from the people that were there. The, the separation between black folk and white folk wasn't at all mended. And so it, it blew away after 10 years. But I just think we have a bad habit of thinking that democracy is about laws. And I think Dewey's right to say that it is, these laws have to be there. That's the, like the, the, the hard manifestation. The beating heart of it has to be human interaction, has to be actually dealing with these issues as human beings face to face.
So I wasn't trying to discount the importance of federal laws or anything like that. I'm just saying it can't only exist at that level. It has to be a felt, a lived commitment. David Allen. You used a wonderful phrase, concentric circles of we. Uh, mm -hmm. It's built into what this human social animal is that we form groups. Of course, large part of the emphasis has been on uh, the use of that for the exercise of power to the dominance of others. And history tells us that, by golly, that's how it goes. At the same time, history also tells us that the only way you, you, we, all of us achieve uh, some larger objectives is by reaching across those uh, network boundaries and forming alliances. Uh, think of some of the uh, monumental things across human history. They only came to pass because there were connections. You can put it in terms of the negative valence of power and the positive valence of cooperation, however we might choose. Uh, my sense, if we want to uh, understand and see clearly this turf that's being laid out, we have to appreciate that these two things are in tension with each other. And the story we stories we tell ourselves want to understand uh, the back and forth between those. Uh, yes, the dominance is a threatening thing, and we see it today uh, with the big lie and a cult leader threatening to try to take over. The side of the story is there are lots of many folks, I think many of us, uh, out there trying to build bridges at the same time. Having said all that, if I could come to habits, um, and let me reach back to those Indiana farm boy days. Um, one of the lessons I learned, it took a long time, but was that I had learned a habit of shame and guilt. And how did I learn that? I was brought up as a Christian boy. I carried a Bible, I saved souls for Christ. And what's the basic rule that you learn? It's that there's original sin, that you come into this world flawed. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Peter Grilly here, I don't personally know, but I've learned he knows Japan so well. I learned from my friends in Japan that pride in Japan is, if not first, it is, uh, it's an example of the opposite way of coming together. And of course, the Japanese understand forming connections across groups as well. In any event, um, well, I want to suggest that, particularly when we look at evangelical, and of course, I'm on the other side of that world and have been for some decades now, but when we look at evangelicals who form a bit, a large part of the forces at play in our world today, uh, we see that those whites have a reason not, not to feel that they are in a good spot uh, that unless they find some countervailing force to, quote, give them pride, they start out flawed. They start out damaged. I don't know where to take it from there, but I want to contribute that to this enormously 
uh, enjoyable and insightful discussion of this topic of habits. I sure as hell grew up as a kid with a habit of feeling like there was something terribly wrong with me, built into me by what was ingrained in those instructions, not just from the church, but from the folks that I grew up with and the ideas that swirled around. Sorry for going on and with great appreciation. No, th thank you. I, I, I appreciate that very much, Mr. Allen. Um, I'm glad you mentioned uh, the evangelical movement. It was um, one of my colleagues, I can try and find their name and email it to you later, um, did a lot of research on how the moral majority, which is kind of the precursor to the modern evangelical movement that really ascended in the late 70s and early 80s, I'm sure you all remember, um, kind of cut its teeth, got started as a response to um, the segregation of public schools um, as a consequence uh, of um, Brown v. Board in the, in the 50s and then also in the 60s. And so the, the white evangelical movement actually was in a very real way kicked off by the first federalized effort to end uh, our country's legalized separation by race. Um, so even though the issue of race and whiteness isn't, say, on the marquee um, among white evangelicals, it's actually very much uh, at play there. This is, this is uh, I'll just say one more comment, then I'll hush. This is why I think um, it's important, again, my, my, my main point is, I think, there's a, there's a tendency to say race is bad science, race is made up, race has done all this horrible stuff, let's just scrap it. If we could go back 600 years, maybe, maybe, if we started us on a different course, I would be down with that. I'm not even sure I would be, though, to be honest. But where we are now, white folk have, again, these habits that we can, with total confidence, total clarity, say, I'm not racist, but do these things that actually manifest these habits. That's why we actually need to keep race talk and keep working through it to see what these things are. Mm -hmm. uh, Jeff. Oh yeah, hi. Uh, oh, oh, first thing I, I think, please, we go. I'll go by first names. You start calling us Mister. You just remind us how much older we are than you are. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm. I am. I am. I call my students sir and ma'am. Just, just to let you know. I know. I know you're not there to see it, but I'm. I'm uh, my dad was in the navy, so uh, talk about habits. Uh, yes, I'm. I'm habitually polite. So. Well, I I have got to know these uh, the the people in this group much better thanks to Kent's bringing us together. I, did, I didn't know everybody before this. Uh, and I'm, not, I'm very convinced that all of us, everybody here has spent a lot of time and energy trying to change this, these conditions and our personal habits. And we, I, you know, we, we have experience in it. We have been, we've been in movements. We have campaigned for, uh, politically. And you know, we, we, some of us got our heads beaten in demonstrations. And so you know, we, um, we, know, we know this uh, uh, quite well personally. But I, I'm wondering, one of the things that I think a lot of us were very enthusiastic about uh, has been some of the changes politically. And I wonder what how do you evaluate the effects that having Barack Obama as president has had on, on these attitudes and habits? I mean, I, it seems to me that this had to, has to have had very big consequences for a lot of people, big ripple effect. So 
uh, well, so, Barack, there's Kamala, there's Stacey Abrams, and so on. They're very prominent. So, gotcha. Um, so you, uh, the we were we were plagued by the internet gremlins. There, you were breaking up a little bit. Was the question, uh, what what do I think about the presidency of Barack Obama and the kind of the changing of American politics? Is that more or less well, what you're I'm, asking? I'm, I'm, I'm wondering. Well, I don't want. I'm not looking for a critique of Obama's presidency, but but uh, rather, uh, what have you? Are you evaluating the, the the effects that having a man of black descent, at least partial black descent, as president of the United States, that uh, must have had some effect on habits generally? Gotcha. And uh, I'm uh, so glad you asked that. Um, uh, and I always say this when I mention my book. Uh, I say this in my new introduction. Don't buy the book. I'm sure you have it at your local library or ask them. Ask Borrow the book. You don't need to buy my book. I hate selling things um <laughs> so true story true story um what where where are we we're november 2008 he just won mm -hmm. i hand to god i am on my way to washington dc right i went to high school at georgetown prep so that's kind of like returning home he just won the presidency and i am about to give a paper at a meeting of the elaine locke society Elaine Locke, Harvard Cosmopolitan Club in the 20s and 30s, uh, when he was a professor there. Jeffrey, I'm excited. So um, this is this is literally a meeting of black philosophers. I'm like one of two white philosophers. Hand to God, Jeffrey, I'm expecting like a big banner, like we did it, we ended racism, this is going to be awesome. I was expecting a true festive atmosphere. And I write about this in the book. Um, I get there they it's it's like um you know everyone just got terrible medical news is is the mood they are on edge they are terrified and i'm kind of like first black president y'all like we're not we're not happy about this and they say well i mean of course we're happy about it of course we rather he won but they say here's what's going to happen White conservatives are going to say racism is over. White conservatives are going to say, don't tell me I'm racist because we have a black president. Don't tell me there's a race problem in America. We have a black president. White liberals are going to say, I'm off the hook too. We did it. We won. What else do you want from me? To a person, Jeffrey, they said things are going to get worse, not better. What do we have? He's in office for a month, and we have the um, the Henry Louis Gates and the police officer issue. Do y'all remember that? Yeah. Where the police officer and then they meet and they meet at the White House and, and Obama tries to bring them together. And um, oh, it wasn't Hannity. It was another talking head said, "I believe Obama is a racist because he talks about race." Every single prediction they made, 100% came true. And whose whose candidacy was effectively kicked off that day? Mm -hmm. I don't think he's really an American. I don't think he's. I think he's from Kenya. How could he be from here? So, and and it really struck me, Jeffrey, because I was this is I was completely whipsawed. I thought like, hey, this is going to be great. And every single one of these black philosophers is telling me, buckle up, 
because we are in for post-reconstruction. We are in for the second post-reconstruction. White racism is about to get a lot worse. And I don't think we've ever been worse. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll go back. I uh, Sadly, I think the summer of 2020, when we started seeing mass movements again for Black Lives Matter, I think that was actually an important step in the right direction. Um, but from 2008 until 2019, Anytime a white conservative was asked about race, they could say, we had a black president. How could I be racist? How could we be racist? How is there a problem anymore? I hope in their wisdom, those black philosophers had opposed Obama's election. Some of them did. No, uh, um, uh, uh, no, no. He, he opposed um, Eddie, uh, Eddie Glau Jr. opposed Hillary. Um, that's right. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I didn't ask him how they voted, uh, uh, Mr. Woodford. Um, I really wonder if the federation comes to an end in my lifetime I, I really worry about the ability for all because i'm right on the border of idaho and i'm in the i'm in a very red part of a very blue state and all of people in spokane county overwhelmingly they keep saying over and over again we want to secede from washington we want to secede from washington we want to start our own state um we want to start the state of liberty um I, I worry that there isn't enough of a we feeling across the whole country to hold it together. And I'd be heartbreaking if 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 that's the case. Um, but I think when we when we look where we are small, like at the at the ground level, Hampton, it's really hard to imagine how we have these face to face conversations and come to a common understanding on a lot of issues. Mm -hmm. Whiteness in the United States works on a form of conditioned ignorance that I'm worried that white folks in general will will shirk their burden, mm -hmm. won't carry their cross if we if we lean into our metaphor a little bit, if we give them, pardon the pun, the carte blanche to just not talk about race. And we want to thank you for coming on. It was really fascinating. Thank you so much. So so which one of you is going to tell me I'm an honorary Harvard graduate now? That's, that's <laughs> I was I was told that's the reason I get to come on now. Consider you know? yourself. Consider yourself. Put doctor of laws past, uh, right. after your name. And, and plus, you're kind of young, too. You're kind of young, you know. <laughs>